Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. been a wonderful Shabbat. I thought what I would do today is we'll just go over the the teaching content of this week's newsletter. Like I said, I think it's very practical in the sense that I think it's encouraging us to understand our time, the time in which we live. And I don't know that it's peculiar to our time because the examples I'm going to use go all the way back to Cain and Abel. This is a human pattern. And so if it goes back as far as Cain and Abel, then of course, it's something that's still going to happen happen to us today. And it's something we can still learn from today. But I, I hope that one thing it accomplishes is that it maybe takes some of the sting out of certain passages of scripture that we might be misunderstanding. Because our experience with love and hate is not always identical to how it's used in scripture. And I think that's been part of the the problem historically is, you know, an understanding of who the chosen people are. And then we have all these replacement theologies, all these replacement religions that try to replace those who are chosen. And it goes back to that jealousy that began with Cain and Abel. And it helps us to understand we don't have to be jealous if someone has chosen for something. We can put the terms love and hate in a proper context so that we don't have a feeling of insecurity. We don't have a feeling of being left out, of being unloved. And after all, isn't that what most of us are afraid of, that we're not loved or that we're not respected in the case of Cain? In the newsletter, I took it all the way back again to something that happened the creation week, which was Shabbat. Shabbat was the seventh day of the creation week. And for those of us who are observing the Shabbat, what we found out is that we keep the Shabbat, or we might say we are learning to keep the Shabbat every week. However, most of the world has not chosen to honor the seventh day as his chosen day, even though he clearly says it's my holy day. It's his holy day. Nevertheless, it's not their holy day. And and it's for different reasons. I think for the most part, most people simply haven't been taught about it. They don't have complete information about the Shabbat. For some, they don't have the information about Shabbat in its proper context. They're not really learning the Bible from the beginning to the end. So they're being taught incorrectly about Shabbat. Often it's just a matter of leaving it out. You know, I heard somebody say yesterday that, you know, in conversations, people just said, well, you know, in our church, it didn't really come up. As we discussed the Ten Commandments, it seemed like it just wasn't addressed very much. And so for, I think, many, it's not a matter of rebellion. They either don't know about it or it's being taught incorrectly, so they don't know that it's his holy day. But what's the most troubling, I don't think is them. I don't think it's the people who are 
experiencing a malfunction because they simply don't have the proper information to make the choice. What's troubling is the people who do know about Shabbat, but they choose not to honor it. Because when we honor the Shabbat, we honor Him. And it's a matter of choice. And so when it comes to choices, they're going to reflect, first of all, what we understand, and second of all, what we prefer. If there's a choice, it means that there's more than one thing available. There's two or more things available. So in terms of Shabbat, the choice might be, do I remember it? Do I guard it and keep it? Or do I not? First of all, do I even understand it? If I don't even understand it, then it's going to be very hard to make it to number two is, do I prefer it? Do I choose it? Do I choose to do this? And I thought about how many times in a day, uh, especially if you've ever been in a position of having to make multiple purchases for a particular project, you notice that every time you have to purchase a product or use a service, it might even be something as simple as you know, having a prescription refilled, you're going to get all these invitations, especially if you're using the internet, to take a survey. They want you to rate certain products and they'll they'll pass it off as though if you'll rate this certain product, then you're really helping the other buyers. That's that's how they package it. That's the, the pretty package they put on it to get you to invest your precious time in the survey or the rating. But what they're really doing is they're mining the data so that they can tweak out their marketing programs. They don't really care personally what you think about that product. They could care less. What they want is the data. What they want is a way to make more money in the long run. It's it's a very greedy process most of the time. Very rarely is it truly for customer service. What they're actually asking you to do is to serve them. You, the consumer, are serving their purposes. They are not giving you the survey so that they can serve your purpose. What does the consumer really want here? They don't care what you really want. They want to know what you'll really buy. Let's just be honest. But we fall for it, especially if we're upset, don't we? If we're really upset about a product or the shipping or whatever. Uh, Sometimes if you read a rating, it has nothing to do with the product itself. It has to do with sloppy delivery service. You know, the, the delivery service didn't meet our expectations, so we give the product a low rating, which is a little unfair. But that's how we get people back that, you know, we really we know we really can't touch them. You know, there might be a better way to go about that. Maybe take the complaint directly to the delivery service when actually you have a good product. No matter what, it's taking your time. It might take you five minutes. It might take you 10 minutes. I really resent the census. I mean, (laughs) I saw a comedian recently who said, why are we spending so much money to take a census? He says, I'm not very smart, but it seems to me if you just took the birth certificates and the death certificates, all you need to do is subtract. You'd know exactly how many people you have. So we're, we're spending a lot of money to find out about people, to mine their data. But these things take your time. And I don't know about you, but I don't work for free in my secular job. The only thing I do for free is ministry. So if you're filling out surveys and questionnaires on what you prefer so that the seller can adjust their selling techniques to make more money, seems to me they should be paying us 
for our time. Now, I don't know what you work for in the secular world. Do you work for $10 an hour, $20 an hour, $60 an hour, $200 an hour? If they had to pay you what you were worth, they would quit asking you to fill out surveys. And your your time is worth a lot. And even if they do give you something back, it's just a trinket. There's it's, it's nothing of value. But it does give us sometimes, like I say, that opportunity to vent. And we might be so upset that we don't even really process, you know what, a real human being is never likely to see this survey or what we wrote. In that sense, the the company is just going to take the numbers, going to take the data, adjust its marketing techniques. And even if somebody does read it, what if it's another consumer does read the, the rating? And we're ranting. Are they going to take it seriously? They might. They might. But you know what? They might have a completely different experience. And like I say, some people just rant because of something different. They're having a bad day. So they take it out on the survey. So I don't know how accurate a survey is. But the process, what are they getting at here? They want to know why we chose that product. They want to know typically, why did you choose this company? Why did you buy on this certain day? Maybe it's a a personal experience you had in a store. Tell us about the salesperson. The thing to remember, it's all about choices. They're trying to figure out why we chose what we chose. They want to know why we chose that particular product from that particular company on that particular day from that particular salesperson. But here's the thing. Did we choose that because we hated every other choice? Of course not. We just did our shopping or we did our research and we preferred one product over the others. It fit our needs. Maybe we need a a stove of this particular size or we need this particular feature on our washing machine. And we found the best price that fit those needs. So that's why we chose it. We found the right thing for us personally. It didn't mean we hated every other washing machine. But here's the problem. Many approach Shabbat and the word itself with a similar mindset. They see it as a personal choice. What suits me best? Rather than seeing it as creator-centered, let me learn what he prefers. Let me learn what he chooses. Let me learn what he loves. And let me choose that. Let me mirror his choice. And that's a little bit of the problem today with student-centered learning. A lot of people, you know, if you're in ministry, they, they really believe they can fill in the blank as to what it is you minister. They think they can throw anything at you and you're supposed to be able to have some big catcher's mitt and you can fill that need for them when maybe, you know, it's a very narrow thing that you signed up to do and you don't really have the capability or the staff or the, the whatever. Maybe you don't have the gift. To do that. That's why it's a body. There's all kinds of ministers within the body to help meet different needs. But there's there's personal choices that we can make. And truly, obeying the word in Shabbat shouldn't go into that same category of choices as picking out a new refrigerator or a new bedspread. It really has to be finding out what the Creator has chosen and then doing our best to choose what he has chosen. It's it's not a fill out a survey sort of <laughs> transaction here. You know, the ministry of the word really isn't a survey transaction. 
I know on YouTube, they've got thumbs up, thumbs down. I'm like, well, that's kind of silly. When we're talking about learning the word, you know, there might be certain teachers that suit you better. But if they're teaching the word, people are going to wonder, are you thumbs upping and thumbs downing the teacher? Or are you thumbs upping and thumbs downing the word? You can see the dilemma there because technology doesn't always fit who we are and what we're doing. And so I wish I could even just take that feature out of there because I don't want somebody to browse through here and say, wow, you know, three people really didn't like that Torah portion this week. (laughs) Let's make sure that I don't like that person that's teaching versus I don't like the content of what they're teaching because the content, the word itself, the it is written part is 100% true, pure, and what should be chosen. And Esau is always a great example of one who knew what to do, and yet he chose to do something differently. Did he know better than to sell his birthright? He did. And did he know better than to marry Canaanite women? He did. Did he know not to plot murder? (laughs) He did. He's twins with Jacob. He knows every single thing that Jacob knows. And yet he makes widely different decisions. He chooses differently. And this is why Esau, who's also called Edom or the red one, he represents the untamed appetites of the soul. And remember, your soul is your appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. It's your life force. And you're not supposed to hate your soul, right? You're supposed to boss it around. If you want to explain a soul to young children, you can tell them it's, you know, your appetite, what you crave. It's your emotions. It's how you feel. It's your desires, your ambitions. What would you like to do? You want to be a fireman? You want to be a policeman? You want to be a farmer? And it's your intellect. It's your thought process. Because even adults are very susceptible to confusing their intellect with their spirit. And so you can explain that to young children and say, you know what? Without these things, you would die. Because your appetite makes sure you'll eat and you'll drink and stay alive. Your emotions make sure that you'll be able to get along with other people. And if you can get along with other people, there's, there's some safety, there's some protection in the group. Your intellect helps you process thoughts and, again, make good choices, improve things. So, yeah, it's a strong life force that our creator designed for us. But as he designed it, he also designed the spirit of a human being to rule over the soul. So the spirit, which functions on it is written, can rule over, I think, I feel, I want. So you can see that if you try to strip the soul away, then you kill the person. That's what we call being dead. But the spirit, the soul, and the body work together. It's just that they have to be in the proper order. So Elohim, he doesn't hate our souls in an emotional sense. He loves our souls so much that he sent his only begotten son to save these rowdy little souls of ours. He gave us the spirit of himself. That spirit of Elohim, it comes from above. And he wants that spirit, that little bit of his Ruach HaKodesh, to rule over our souls, appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect. And he chose, speaking of choices, he chose that modality. He says, this is the way a human being is designed to function. My spirit in this human being is going to rule over the unique soul that I put within him. So let's read Malachi 1, 1 through 3. 
and see if we can get a better handle on love and hate and how it might affect being chosen and choices. It says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, which is Malachi in the South. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now, see, that can be a little bit confusing because you're saying, didn't he put the spirit both within Esau and Jacob? Didn't he form the souls of both Esau and Jacob? Certainly he did. But what he's referring to here are the choices. He put the souls in them, but then those souls had to make some choices. They had to choose to be disciplined of the spirit, to conform to what they understood and knew of the choices of the one who made them. And that's why sometimes it it can be difficult to deal with who scripture says is chosen. It's hard to understand being chosen because we know Adonai is fair, but then on the other hand, he chooses certain people. He chooses certain places. So in context, and context is everything, but you need to understand that in context, sometimes loving and hating or being chosen, all it means is that one is preferred or ranked over the other one because of the choices that that person or that group of people make. Or in terms of, say, geography, you know, the land doesn't really make choices, but he has chosen the land for a particular reason that we may not understand. It doesn't always mean hating in the sense that we understand hate as an emotion. And usually when we say we hate something, like I hate Brussels sprouts, we hate it with extreme emotion. We're averse to it. it it's distasteful. It's an abomination. We, we have a certain feeling that, that comes with it. But we can also lose a handle on what it means to be chosen or loved in the sense of preference and precedence in certain matters. And that what is hated, it doesn't have that same heat of emotion that we attach to it in certain cases. Sometimes it can, you have to know the context. But in some contexts, it's ranking things that what I love is what I prefer over what I hate, which I'm ranking beneath it. So why were Jacob and Esau ranked in this little passage here? I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Well, it had to do with their preferences. Jacob wanted to serve Adonai. Esau wanted to serve Esau. So he's saying, those who choose me to serve me and to try to do the things that please me, I love them. I prefer them. Not necessarily the same context of love as God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son because he loves everybody. But sometimes it's used for ranking and preference in a specific context. And that's why I say if if we've attached hate to a feeling of loathing and disgust, we're going to have trouble sometimes recognizing when it's used to rank behaviors. 
And that's the problem because what we're talking about here, it's, I don't know that it's something that I can teach you and you'll have it nailed down exactly. I think it's something I can start you thinking about and looking for in scripture. And I think given over time, if I just kind of give you a push in that direction, it'll start to make sense to you the longer you study. Our human experience is only a parable of reality. The reality is in our creator. The reality is in Messiah. So when we experience emotion, desire, and intellect, these are only mirrors of that which is authentic and perfect. And that's why often we can only see love and hate as strong emotions. And then we miss the nuance of, say, that passage where he talks about how I've loved Jacob and hated Esau, where he's teaching us the importance of making good choices based on his preferences instead of ours. He's not asking us to fill out a survey to find out which of his commandments we prefer and which days we prefer to do them or which teacher we prefer to hear them from or which Bible translation we prefer to read. He he doesn't send us a survey. He doesn't even ask him whether we prefer to do them at all. He's just watching to see if we do. And so what we see is often because this This kind of hating and loving has to do with whether the person chooses to do what Adonai wants or whether he chooses to do what his soul wants. In those times in scripture when people felt rejected, can you see how they also felt unloved? And maybe that's why it's worded as love and hate. That when Adonai pushes away your choice and you are embodied by the choice Some people think their ideas are them. Your idea is just your idea. It'll change tomorrow. It's not you. It can reflect you, but it's not you. You don't have to remain attached to that idea. But some people think their ideas are them. And if they have a wrong idea or they do a wrong thing, that people are rejecting them as a person. They feel unloved. And in scripture, we saw when this happened, often people will act in reprehensible ways. Cain killed Abel. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. King Saul kept trying to kill David. And so on. That's the whole Bible. If I won't choose what Adonai wants and he refuses to respect what I want, then I'll just simply kill the competition. I'll kill what he loves. And that way I can kill what he chooses. That's a problem. But see, the the people of scripture, their story is our story. It's telling us about our own nature. And so when Adonai does in scripture express a preference for people who do his will instead of their own will, sometimes we're going to miss the issue. Just like Cain. Cain knew what to do in order to have his sacrifice respected. He says, you know what to do. Just go do the right thing. There's no reason for me to love Abel's sacrifice more than yours. If you will bring your best of the fruit of the ground instead of leaving the best at home instead of just bringing of the fruit of the ground, if you will bring me your best too, I will respect that. I will love that sacrifice. That's all that Cain had to do. All he had to do was choose what Elohim preferred. And instead, he chose to kill the competition because he saw it as a rejection of himself. You see how he tied himself up into the choice so that if he chose not to change that he would feel rejected and unloved because Adonai is always going to have to rank lower what is not his choice, what is not his will. It has to fall under here because remember, his choice is the reason.
reality, not ours. We can't by choosing change what he has chosen just because we choose something different. Here's another one that can blow your mind a little bit so you realize what the context is. It's Psalm 78, 67, and 68. It says, he also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Sion, which he loved. Well, you can see the the possible offense can go way back. How many people have rejected the Jews as the chosen people? Or if they say they are the chosen people, we'll make it where they wish they hadn't been chosen at all. Rather than do what Adonai chooses, rather than obey his will, they have invented all sorts of replacement theologies and replacement religions. Rather than see this is the path in, this is the pattern in, I can look at Jews who have the covenant, who have the word, who have the Torah. These are, you know, these are the oracles of Adonai, as Paul wrote to the Romans. I can turn to these oracles, I can turn to the Torah, and I can find out what the will of Elohim is, and I can choose that, and I don't have to kill Jews. I don't have to persecute Jews. I don't have to have a Cain mentality that it just, I'm not going to change my way of doing things. So I'll just kill the guy who does it the right way. But in the context, you can see that he's not rejecting Joseph and Ephraim as a people. He's not rejecting the descendants of Joseph and Ephraim as people. He's not saying he doesn't love them. All he's saying is, you know what? Their territory is not going to be the resting place of my glory. Instead, he had already chosen the territory of Judah and Benjamin for the Temple Mount, for the place to build his house, for the peoples to come up and worship. Adonai loved Mount Zion, which means he loved his people, all his people who would go there to worship. And you know what? Those chosen people, they were to establish a house of prayer for all nations to worship. Because remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But see, if we tripped all the way back here on Psalm 78 and 67 and say, oh no, you know, he, he even rejected the descendants of Joseph. It's going to be really hard to make it to a house of prayer for all people if we just got hung up on a feeling of rejection when he's not saying he's rejecting the people. He's saying, I reject their territory for this particular project. He will choose certain people for certain things. He will choose certain places for certain things. It was simply saying, this is part of the plan of salvation. The Temple Mount is part of the plan of salvation. It is the place from which the Torah will go forth to the nations, the word of the Lord. And it's also the place to where the nations will come. It's part of a great plan of salvation. And it just shows us the geography the geographical aspect of how it's going to be accomplished, we don't really know why he thinks it's that special other than, you know, our suspicion is that the Garden of Eden is right there, that it's hovering just above it in another realm. And so this is the place where, you know, it's going to descend like a bride, where the physical and the, the spiritual will once again be united. And that's why it's in that particular location. But it, it doesn't mean that he's rejecting other people. It means that he rejects any other location for this particular thing. But don't we get stuck 
when we hear a word like rejection or hated, or if we're just not chosen for something. Sometimes we're just not chosen for something. So we have to step back when we, we begin to feel offended and say, well, no, wait a minute, what's the context here? Just like you can't take that, that passage in Psalm out of context. It's not about not loving the descendants of Joseph. It's not even saying that he loves the tribe of Judah more. It's saying, I chose my place in their territory. That's all it means. But when we hear a word like rejection, or we realize we're not chosen for something, we get wounded. So we have to start stepping back and say, if I'm feeling rejected, if I'm feeling wounded, probably I can boil it down to do two questions. I can self-check here. Is this a Cain question? Is this just a question of whether I need to modify my own behavior and my own choices and do better like Cain was told? Just like, go choose the right thing and I'll accept it. I'll respect it. Turn loose of what he can't respect and then bring what he can. And so it, it might be something we need to change and do better. But in the case of rejecting Joseph and choosing Judah in terms of where to place the temple, well, there's nothing you can do about that. Other than if you're feeling jealous about it, you can get rid of that feeling. But there's nothing about your behavior in that particular situation that's wrong. It's just that he chose something else. Right? Remember, when you when a store is chosen, look how many hundreds or thousands of other stores that weren't chosen. They get over it. Okay, You have to get on with the job. But the second question, again, maybe it really has nothing to do with me and my choices. Only how a greater plan is being executed? Is this just a divine plan and design? Like we're saying, there's really nothing about my behavior that needs to change. So I have to decide one of those two things. Is it something I can change? Can I line up my will with his will? Or does it really have nothing to do with me and what I'm choosing? It's just part of that world outside of me. It's just something for me to accept. But the world really does struggle with these chosen words, Zion, Zionism, Zionist, which proper pronunciation would be Zion, right? Zion. Why does the world hate words like Zion, Zionism, Zionist? Well, here's some passages why they might. Isaiah 62 1 says, because I love Zion, I will not keep still because my heart yearns for Jerusalem. I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. And so we look at Sion and we say, hey, that's just a political entity. Hey, that's just a, another state like any other. Hey, those people have just as many problems as everybody else. True. Was Judah any different from Joseph? No, but their territory was chosen. It wasn't like they were superior human beings. It was simply they had their tribal territory encompassed the place of the temple. And so here we get the idea that what's going to set them apart? It says, I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. She has a sense of who she is, but her righteousness isn't that shining yet. That's why the prayer is ongoing. Her salvation is not yet blazing like a burning torch, but that's the prayer that she is going to grow to that place. So Zion is something that is in process, and it's a people who are looking forward to that 
Not necessarily that, that they're shining that brightly yet, but they have that sense of chosenness that we can choose what the Father chooses. We might not be doing it well, but it's a, it's a process. Zechariah 1.14, the angel said to me, shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Sion is passionate and strong. There's that love word again. He loves Jerusalem. He loves Mount Sion. And how does that make the world feel? Apparently, instead of encouraging them to find out what Jerusalem and Mount Sion are all about, what the Torah, what the word is all about, instead, they've got the Cain syndrome, and they believe that by simply silencing the competition, killing the competition, dominating the competition, that somehow that's going to be a way of dealing with not being willing to choose the will of Adonai. And really, that's all it comes down to. When we're talking about Zionism, we're talking about people who are making an effort to find out what the will of Adonai is and do it. Doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that that's the goal. And you know what? He loves that because he prefers Jerusalem and Mount Sion. He prefers and ranks those who are finding out his will and making an effort to do it. And remember with Esau, he says, I hate him. Does it mean that he hated the human being? I don't really think so. I think what he's saying is I hate their choices that they're making. And in case we just weren't sure about that love thing, (laughs) as you keep reading in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2, it says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says, my love from Mount Sion is passionate and strong. I'm consumed with passion for Jerusalem. So yes, he loves them. He prefers them. He has chosen them. What can make you included in the chosen people? What can make you included in the loved people? And remember, we're setting aside for now because we're talking about a different context. God so loved the world. He so loved every human being. That's in a a different place. We're talking about a different kind of context when he talks about love. Sometimes he talks about love as a preference for people who do his will. So Zion and Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's covenant people walking in righteousness Are they perfect yet? Clearly they're not, (laughs) because he says, I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn. Walking in righteousness, doing what you know to do. Where do they assemble? They assemble at the place of his choosing. Can they get on the Temple Mount? No, not yet. They will, just like salvation. Some people, they're not saved yet. Some people, you know, can't get on the Temple Mount yet. It's okay. We keep doing the best that we can do, because the Father has a passionate love. Whether we're talking about the people who choose to do his will or this particular place where he has chosen for his will to be executed upon all the nations. These things are instrumental to his ultimate plan. So what is a Zionist? A Zionist is someone who obeys the creator and chooses what he chooses. And righteous nations and righteous people will accept that pattern. Just like Joseph and Ephraim's territory, their rejection was not that he didn't love them, that he somehow was scorning them. He doesn't hate them the way that human beings hate. 
but he's highlighting the way of his choice. He's saying, this is the path. There is a path of obedience to salvation in Yeshua. Yeshua will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Father loves and chooses those who love and choose what he loves and chooses. It's his way of directing the people of the earth to him because he loves them all. He's saying, out there doing your own thing, you're never going to find me. But I have chosen these people here to help you find me because I love you. I hate the choices you're making, but because I love you, I've given you the way of salvation. Because I love you, I have given you access to my word. And historically, of course, the Jews have maintained his word. They have had in their hand salvation. Yeshua is in every page. He's in every word. He's in every letter of the Torah, every mark in that Torah. It prophesies of him. And so just by wiping out Jews, like Hitler thought he could do, that's not really a solution because you will never be able to wipe out the word. You'll never be able to wipe out the creator. You will never be able to make him love what he hates or hate what he loves. What did Jeroboam do? Speaking of Ephraim, Jeroboam set up golden calves in Bethel of Ephraim and also up in Don because he didn't agree with Adonai's choice of geography. He didn't agree with the certain choosing of tribes and priests and so forth. He didn't choose the same pattern. He didn't like the times. So he changed the time of the feasts. He did not love what the creator loved, and he didn't choose what he chose. And when you're locked into that, when you say, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to adjust my will to his will, then you'll do anything to divert the chosen people from the chosen place. Because if you do that, you're trying to force them to lose their identity. He's always had a remnant of people who loved and chose Zion. Why? Because in the future, Isaiah 2.3 says, For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If you want to wipe out that word, you try to wipe out the people. If you want to wipe out that word as the ruling document of the whole earth, then you try to control that temple mount. You try to control Jerusalem so that you can squash that so people will not know what to choose and what to love so as to be chosen in love. You can't destroy it. I'm sorry. Zionism is to choose the Father's plan. And so, yes, Judah has leadership has for a long time, leadership, not ownership. But somehow in every generation, there's some among the nations who believe that controlling or exterminating Jews is the first step toward ruling the whole earth. And then what do they do from there? They believe from there they can redirect the obedience of the nations. It's that Esau mindset. You know, he's like, just wait till mom and dad die and then I'll kill Jacob. Esau, yes, he coveted his father's love, but he didn't love the father enough to obey his plan. Jacob obeyed. And that's how we get this statement, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Not so much about emotional love. Isaac loved both his sons. But when it comes to ranking and preference, which son will be able to carry into the next generation the covenant promises? Jacob loved. We have to sometimes make a difference between emotional love and ranking love in terms of furthering the purposes of the Father. In biblical language, sometimes love and hate can be a matter of preference, not necessarily an emotion of hatred. So let's extend this to 
the Lord's day, to the Shabbat. We've worked our way back there now. He says, if because of the Shabbat, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Shabbat a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, right? Speaking your own word. That that part there has always fascinated me. Like what words are mine and what words are his? What? As we're studying in English, that's a bit of a stretch from what's actually there in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text just says the bar, word, and a word is a thing. And so there's Devarim, plural. That's the book of Deuteronomy. So it's the book of words, the book of things. So it's it's a speech, it's a word, it's a saying. But it can also be business, occupation a matter, a case, more important thing, business things, work things. So the translators, they're reading more into the simple word of devar. They're calling it your own word rather than word. And I think the reason for this might be the 204 ways that devar is used as a miscellaneous word for they know it doesn't mean thing or they know it doesn't mean commandment. A devar is a word. A devar is a thing. The word is the thing. And so there's a contrast between Shabbat behavior, especially as we look in the context and we see how it's used in context there, like your own pleasure, you know, what you decide is honorable, what you decide is this. Rather, on Shabbat especially, practice choosing what he chooses. And if he chooses to cease from his work on Shabbat, then our choice should be lined up with his choice. If we don't, it doesn't mean he emotionally hates us. But if we do what he says, then he loves and chooses us because we have loved and chosen him. But remember, he first loved us. But that's important because there's a contrast between Shabbat behavior Shabbat thinking, Shabbat emotions, and yes, Shabbat choices, when we stack them up against what occurs on days one through six. And it's not like Adonai is rejecting days one through six, like he somehow wants to wipe them off the calendar and just have Shabbat every day, although the millennium is going to be very much like that. It'll be a a day that's all Shabbat. Each of those days one through six had some element of goodness and good choices. So he's not, it's not like he's uncreating days one through six, but he's choosing and designating day seven, just like he chose and designated a people in a place called Zion. So we have to let him choose and we have to help advance the purpose of that choosing by also choosing to honor and enjoying the Shabbat, the seventh day, differently than we do the other six days of the week. And like we said, it's not like he's tossing out those first six days. It's not a matter of, I hate you, I'm going to destroy you. It's just that here's my preference. Here's the way I'm ranking them. This is the day. This is the first thing called holy in the Bible is the Shabbat. I'm choosing this day. All the things we've done day one through six have prepared us for the seventh day. And all the things that we have prepared day one through six, we can enjoy on the seventh day. If we didn't prepare it on one of those other six days, then we won't have it on Shabbat. So in essence, those six days really are part of that chosen day. 
So it's not a matter of versus. It's it's not a love unloved, hated, not hated thing in the sense of human emotion, but of divine design. The soul was chosen for its purpose. The spirit was chosen for its purpose. The body was chosen for its purpose. They work together and they work under the discipline of the spirit to live. It's not like he's trying to chop off our soul and our body. When that happens, we're dead. But he's trying to show us how to choose what he chooses. He says, Esau's territory will be made into a desolation as a discipline for not accepting the choices and the design of Elohim. When we use Esau as a picture of the soul, the soul is finally going to see the death and devastation caused to the body. And remember, the body's formed from the earth that's caused when we do not choose to follow the Creator's will and design. What happens to the corpses of the body of the righteous at the resurrection will be very different than what happens to the corpses of the wicked who have chosen differently, who have chosen their own ways and persisted and rebelled in their own ways rather than seeking out the will of Elohim. And so that's why I believe there's so many sevens in the book of Revelation. We tend to obsess over 666 and just completely disregard that most of the book's about the number seven. It's as though he's telling us, yeah, there's going to be devastation in the world. And this is what you're going to have to experience in order for at least a remnant to begin to acknowledge his choices. And that's going to start with the first principle, the seventh, the Shabbat. So that helps us make sense now that we know what Devar is. When he says your own words, don't, don't do your own words on Shabbat, do his words on Shabbat. Our own words are the business words, the occupation words, the preparation words, the things we talk about and do on weekdays. On Shabbat, we can reject those conversations and those things in order to choose the words and the things of Shabbat. Mishneh Torah kind of clears it, clarifies it. It says, from attending to your affairs and speaking idle words. Idle words in Hebrew, rick, you probably, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know the word rock, which is only, it means only, just this, right? Uh, very limited. And an idle word is rick, and that means empty or worthless. It doesn't really have that growing function. It's isolated. And so a word that we would consider valuable if we spoke it, a conversation we had it Sunday through Friday, might be considered very valuable in our business, our occupation, our labors. But if we speak those words on Shabbat, they become worthless and empty. Words that would be valuable, honorable, and delightful on a different day, not so much on Shabbat. That's why you don't do really intense study on Shabbat, by the way. You don't labor over the word in the same way. You should labor hard in the word, days one through six, but it should be more of a delightful study of the word on Shabbat. So you don't want to get too heavy on Shabbat. So we choose the Shabbat and its instructions for ceasing from creative work. And we exercise a choice when we do that to be chosen and loved. Not in the sense of for God so loved the world. Remember, different context. In this context, we're chosen and we're loved because we chose and we loved what he chose and loved. So we choose to rest in our salvation in Messiah Yeshua. We know we can't add or subtract anything 
from what was already finished on day six of creation. Yeshua, he was slain from the foundation of the world. He was the word from the foundation of the world. He finished the work on day six. It's already done. Now it's our responsibility to walk in what he has set before us. That's all we can do is walk in and honor the devar that was established from the foundation of the world. We can't redraw the boundaries of the creation. We'll destroy it if we do. We can't redraw the boundaries of the word. It's ours to hear and to do, to honor and to respect, to delight in and rejoice in. When we choose and love his day, then we've got lots of personal choices within the boundary of Shabbat. You get to choose what you eat, what you wear, who you have over for a meal, what kind of tour discussions you're going to have that are not going to be idle, empty, or controversial, or likely to start a fire. And we can rest in knowing that the Father's love for us is strong, it's passionate, and it's eternal, and that we're chosen. There's no reason for us to feel left out, rejected, unloved. There's no reason to ever feel that way. No matter where you are on the ladder of learning, as long as you're on the ladder, that's what counts. That you're seeking and trying to find out what His will is, that's what counts. That determines your chosenness. That determines how He loves you. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.